Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada. Today, we're continuing in our series in Romans called The Progress of the Gospel. And our scripture reading will come from Romans chapter 10, verses 15 to 18, as Dr. Neufeld shares a message entitled, What If They Don't Hear? Melody Dean tells of something that happened to her in church. It was Mission Sunday and the song leader had invited the congregation to take out their hymnals and he said, we're going to sing till the whole world knows. And her daughter looked up at her and whispered, I think we're going to be here a long time. I know that sounds kind of funny, but let me put a serious spin on that. Listen to these words of Jesus in Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I think we're going to be here a long time, don't you? I mean, after 2,000 years, and still the gospel has not been proclaimed as a testimony to all nations. It looks like we're going to be here a long time. Now, I'm aware that Matthew 24:14 really does get a debate going about what that actually means. Since there were no nation states in the time when Jesus said those words, what did he mean by nations? Some point out that the Greek word is the word ethne, from which we get the word ethnic, and that Jesus is saying that every ethnic group in the world would have the gospel available to them in some fashion. That would mean every culture and language and people group of the world. But even that leaves us with some unanswered questions. What does it mean to have the gospel proclaimed to every ethnic group? Well, some argue that radio and television and the internet are now making the gospel available to the whole world. And still others will say that it requires an indigenous church in every culture. But others argue that the words to all nations need mean no more than that the gospel in some fashion is going global. Now, I think that Jesus deliberately kept the matter vague so that we wouldn't be either setting dates or believing that the second coming is still so far off that we're not living in expectation. I think what Jesus had in mind is echoed by Peter in 2 Peter 3, verse 12, where he spoke of waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord. Well, there are two issues. Waiting for speaks of an ever-present expectation that the second coming is never far from us. And hastening speaks of the work of evangelism and missions and church planting and gospel proclamation as our active part in bringing about the second coming. Now, back to the Bible, Canada feels it's a great privilege to be a part of that work. We frequently hear from people who might not have heard in any other fashion. And those of us who proclaim and those of us who support and pray for our country believe that God is giving us a unique privilege. But realistically, how close are we to completing the task? Well, I can't answer the question because, again, Jesus kept the matter deliberately vague. But let's look at what we do know. An organization called Frontier Missions a number of years ago reported that about one-third of the Earth's population call themselves Christians, whatever they mean by that. At the very least, they have access to the saving message of Jesus. And approximately another one-third of the world's population are living in what we call unreached people groups. That is, they have no living witness of the gospel. That looks like we're going to be here for a long time, or does it? 
It turns out, says Frontier Missions, that only 30 years earlier, the number of unreached people were about one-half of the Earth's population. In other words, within a period of 30 years, the number of unreached people shifted from one-half to one-third of the Earth's population, and for the first time in history, there are fewer people within the unreached peoples than there are among those who claim to follow Jesus. Furthermore, about a decade ago, one reputable major mission source claimed that the unreached people groups are down to 26%. Now, if they're right, the map has shifted by one quarter of the Earth's population in about 25 years. You know, maybe we're not going to be here as long as we expected. The late Ralph Winter, who is one of the leading missiologists in the world in his day, believed that we are now in the final era of missions. Now, before you get your back up, be sure you understand what he meant by that. He said, and I quote, For the first time in history, we can anticipate the completion of the missionary task, which is to establish an indigenous church planting movement within the language and social structure of every people on earth. And by the way, in case you missed it and the news hasn't reached you yet, we're living in absolutely unique and amazing times. See, one thing is clear. We are living in a time when the Christian church is advancing at an unprecedented rate, and it's accompanied by global persecution as the enemy of our souls is fighting back. Every year sees growing evidence of persecution and even frequent martyrdom. Some have estimated hundreds of cases of martyrdom every single day. And much of that is occurring as the governments of the world remain strangely silent. Now, why are we talking about this? Well, we've been studying Romans 10, and from that, we have learned several important truths. First of all, we've learned that the gospel message is simple, and it's easy to understand. What the gospel demands is not simple because it demands our lives, but everyone can understand it. You don't have to ascend into heaven or go down into the depths to get it. Rather, it is easily comprehensible. Secondly, people can't believe the gospel unless they hear, and therefore the gospel message requires that preachers and evangelists and missionaries be sent out. The task is not finished. In fact, in order to finish the task that Jesus has given us, a great missionary sacrifice will still have to be made. It does no good to say, well, God has mercy on whom he wills, and then remain indifferent to the call of world missions. We're going to have to give up our own comfort. Romans 10, 14 to 15 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And so Paul has been making the case for the necessity of gospel preaching. Now today, I want to address an issue that sometimes gets raised in North American circles, and it's the issue that, after all has been said, is taking the wind out of our sails for missions and evangelism. The question has to do with the eternal fate of the unevangelized. What happens to those who have never heard? Sometimes the question begins in what seems like an innocent fashion. Are we to actually believe that God would eternally condemn people that have no access to salvation? Yes, we do rejoice that the gospel is growing, but still, a great many people have no access to it today, and in years past, that was also the same. Are we to conclude that these people are all eternally lost? 
Sometimes Abraham's words in Genesis 18, verse 25, are here quoted, which say, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And furthermore, who are we that we should make such a judgment? How can we say who is lost? At least that's how the arguments are stated today. And many of us have simply accepted this logic. Now, from that conclusion, some have gone to Peter's encounter with a Roman centurion in Caesarea. You remember that Peter went to that home reluctantly because Peter had not felt comfortable in either going to a Gentile home or in preaching the gospel to them. But God persuaded him, and when he arrived, Acts 10, 34-35, records what happened next. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, from that statement, some have taken Peter's words to mean that among those who have never heard the gospel, if they show reverence for God and do what is right insofar as they understand it, won't they be acceptable to God? Now, if that's how you understand Peter's words, we do Peter a great disservice. That's because in the next chapter, chapter 11, Peter's explaining to a shocked church in Jerusalem that he had gone to the home of Gentiles. Listen to what Peter says in Acts 11:13 to 14. He says, And he, that is Cornelius, told us how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. In other words, not until Peter preached the gospel to them were they saved from their sins. Indeed, a fair and unbiased reading of the New Testament makes it clear that sin is universal, and all are universally condemned for their sins. God sent Jesus as the only hope for our sins. As Acts 4 verse 12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That has been the rallying cry of missions, evangelism, and gospel proclamation. Well, we'll continue more with Dr. John Newfeld next. What does the Bible say about things like gender identity, homosexuality, and transgenderism? These are questions that live in the minds of many young adult Christians in our culture. Dr. John Newfeld said, I can think of no greater need than the need to give biblical, reasonable, and understandable answers to the questions they're asking about gender identity. Well, we're responding to that need by hosting InDoubt's first InDoubt Live event about sexual identity. InDoubt Live will include speakers Dr. John Newfeld, leader of Ethos Ministry and Pastor Dave Johnson, InDoubt's own ministry leader Isaac Dagno, and others. And the evening will include an open forum for questions and worship led by Brittany Dagno. So if you're a young adult or part of a young adult group, join us for In Doubt Live Sexual Identity happening Thursday, October 27th at 6.30 p.m. at Clova Theatre in Surrey. In Doubt Live is free and you can discover all the details at live.indoubt.ca. Now let's return to Back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Many of us are struck by the fate of those who have never heard. Please understand that this is no mere academic question. 
if a great portion of humanity that has never heard is already saved or will be saved in some fashion, the nerve of urgency for missions is cut. But if millions upon millions stand on the brink of an eternal horror, with no hope of redemption outside of Christ, I suggest it is indeed a callous individual who is not moved to action. Paul's words in Romans 10:14, how are they to hear without someone preaching, is laced with urgency. Now, before we go on, I think I must make something clear, which is often misunderstood. Critics of the Christian faith often charge us with saying that we believe that people are condemned for not believing in Jesus. So please hear me. We're not saying that at all. John 3.17 says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But then in the very next verse, it says, whoever does not believe is condemned already. That is, before the choice of believing or not believing is presented to them, they stand condemned already. So what does that mean? Romans 1 to 2 and a host of other passages of Scripture make it plain that we are condemned for our sins, not for our failure to believe, and that's essential. Christ is the solution for our condemnation, not the reason for our condemnation. Think of it this way. Imagine that you have an aggressive, incurable cancer. Now imagine that a new innovative treatment is found. Maybe it's 100% effective in curing the cancer that's in you. If you fail to receive that treatment and die, please remember that the treatment had nothing to do with your death. See, the same is true about the discussion of those who have never heard. The first issue we need to discuss is the issue of sin. Does sin always lead to death? Are there exceptions? Can other forms of treatment for our sin be found to cure this fatal disease? John Piper has said, the New Testament is not the revelation that the Gentiles already belong to God. Rather, it is the revelation that all, both Jew and Gentile, can believe. To put it another way, the New Testament is the revelation that all can be offered, the salvation that comes through Jesus. God makes no distinction between Jew and Gentile and offers his Son to all, regardless of racial and cultural background. Let's do a brief study of some key and important texts. Let's begin with the very book that we're studying, the book of Romans. You may remember that Paul states the matter of his ministry quite succinctly in Romans 1 verse 5, speaking about Jesus. And then he says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. Notice that Paul does not assume that the nations have a kind of second-tier obedience of faith, some kind of already existing salvation. No, no, he seeks to bring it about or to create something that has not existed until then. Indeed, the first brush with Gentile evangelism came as the result of Peter's reluctant witness in the home of a Roman centurion in the Roman military garrison of Caesarea. And as we have seen, even though Peter encounters a group of God-fearing Gentiles who are on some level upright and seek to do what is right, he assumes that they are not saved. And so he preaches the gospel to them so that they might be saved. But from that witness came a determination that the gospel must be preached to the Gentiles. Let's fast forward to the Apostle Paul in his second missionary journey. He's just arrived in Athens, and he's standing in the Areopagus, and that's a legal court that had authority over the civil and religious life of Athens. 
And attending the court that day are Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who have heard Paul speaking in the marketplace. At first, they called him a babbler. And then upon listening to him further and upon discussing what he might be saying, they make a decision to take him to the Areopagus. And so there stands Paul, ready to tell the Athenian legal council what it is that he has been preaching in their city. Let's pick up the dialogue recorded in Acts 17, verses 30 to 31. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now let's start with the last part of that argument. Paul is saying that Jesus has unique authority over the Athenians, a people group that has never heard of him. And the reason the Athenians should trust Jesus is because he has demonstrated his authority through his bodily resurrection from the dead. Now, those of you who know a bit about Greek philosophy will know that for the Greeks, the body was the prison house for the soul. So the idea of a bodily resurrection was unheard of. That's not to say that the Greek gods didn't die and rise from the dead, but what Paul was speaking about was a real event in real history in which the demonstrably real dead body of Jesus stood up from the tomb and came to life. Since such an event had never happened, Jesus has unique authority and they should listen to him. Now, from that statement, we come to the beginning of his argument. Paul says that there was a time prior to preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles, a time Paul called the times of ignorance. God says Paul overlooked them, that is, the Gentiles and the Athenians, in times past. No gospel was preached to them in times past. According to Acts 14, verse 16, Paul told the people of Lystra something very similar in which he said, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. And so it seems likely that the times of ignorance and walking in their own ways are the same thing. Now, that doesn't mean that the ignorance that they were in means that God would ignore their sins. That would contradict the rest of the New Testament. Romans 1.18 speaks of the wrath of God against all nations because of their sins. Now look again at Acts 14, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Now Paul means that whatever the times of ignorance were, they were not times in which people were ignorant of God. God was always their provider. They owed to God an infinite debt of gratitude for his grace and kindness in which he provided for them. Now, the ignorance they experienced was the ignorance of how they might be saved in spite of their sins. So let's get back to the Areopagus in Athens. Paul has said that there were times of ignorance in which God had overlooked the Athenians. Now, he says, those days are past. Now, he commands all people to repent. Now, from that passage, it seems to me that there was a time in which, in his own sovereignty, God had given men and women over to their own ways. But now, through the preaching of the gospel, he is pursuing the very people that he once allowed to live in ignorance. And that is the call of missions. The times of ignorance are over. 
God is in our day making an appeal to the whole world, and as Paul makes plain in 2 Corinthians, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. Or as Paul has told us in Romans 10, how will they hear without someone preaching to them? It seems then mere idle speculation, and might I add, even motivation-destroying, unbiblical speculation that gets us to believe that it is possible to have our sins forgiven without explicit faith in Jesus. See, once we understand the plight of a sin-ruined humanity and the grace that is offered to us in Christ, we are compelled as believers by love to go. It seems also that the greatest question before us is to train people to know how to share the gospel with family and friends and loved ones, work colleagues, neighbors, and so forth. But we must also call out preachers and teachers and evangelists and missionaries who are intent on establishing and building gospel-preaching churches in every culture on this globe. Why? Because love compels us to go. It was in 1 Corinthians one twenty one that Paul says, Since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. See, in this amazing day in which we live today, now is not the time to advance theories of salvation that offer hope to those who have never believed. Rather, now is the day to complete the task that Jesus has given us to do. Now is the time to fulfill the Great Commission and so hasten the coming of our Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would inspire God's people not to come up with unbiblical theories, but rather to hear the call of Jesus that we might go forth and preach the gospel to everyone who has not yet heard, so that your name might be glorified and salvation come to all. In Jesus' name we pray. John, great message. Um, We're going to talk about something that was a little bit different than we would normally. Uh, This past couple of weeks have been difficult for our family here at Back to the Bible Canada uh, with the loss of our uh, audio production uh, coordinator, uh, Rebecca Cron. A couple of weeks ago, actually today, and this is the first time we're back in the office, uh, she was killed in an auto accident. And uh, she was an incredible young lady. And uh, she meant so much to us. But, you know, it's, it's sort of fitting that we're talking about her just now because this message about going and telling the world about Jesus was something that was so critical to her own heart and life. And, and, and we're just grateful to have had her in our life. But, John, your experience of Rebecca was what? Well, you know, it's interesting that this is the message that we're talking about, Rebecca, because uh, one of the stories that had come to me, and this is not my encounter with her, but a story with her, and that has to do with her sharing the gospel with a complete stranger in a grocery store. And, uh, you know, those were just common to Rebecca. She was not only a a young woman that was gifted in her craft— uh, she was a young woman that that uh, just exuded a love for Christ. She was a woman of purity. Uh, she was a woman of holiness. And she was a woman who profoundly believed the Scripture. You know, what a joy it was to work with a woman like that. Now, Ben, I know you have your own memories. You worked with her longer than I did. Yeah, you know, I think of Rebecca, and I think of something Phil used to say. He used to say, you know, live as though people will believe what's on your tombstone. And she did that. When you uh, heard the celebration service that uh, was conducted in her memory, uh, 
Everybody talked about how authentic and how much her love for Christ was really at the center of who she was. Well, we're going to miss her, but we know she's in a greater place right now. She's with the Lord. And uh, we just want to thank everyone who supported us over these last difficult weeks. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.